You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Casal and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Rob last week, where we had a wide-ranging uh, conversation on lots of topics that relates to both people considering trend-following as part of their portfolio for the first time, as well as for the trend-following nerds like ourselves. Also, I would really encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where we had the pleasure of speaking with the author of the Financial Times Best Business Book Award for this year, namely Chris Miller, who recently published his book, Chip Wars, which is just a fascinating book on so many fronts. So head over and check them out as soon as you're done listening to Jim and I today. Jim, it is great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things in the Windy City? Good. Uh, holiday season is upon us. We just had our holiday party uh, here at Kai Volatility last night. So, uh, And I think the market's uh, it's going to be an interesting end of the year, beginning of the year. I think we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. But uh, you know, seasonality is a little different this year, and, and, and things feel a little different uh, this holiday season. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So that explains the the more than usual Barry White voice, I think, in your <laughs> Christmas party. <laughs> a little huskier this morning, for sure. A little huskier. Good, good for you. All right. Well, um, there obviously were a lot of headlines this week, uh, quite an eventful week, really. Um, a lot of it was driven by all of the Fed action. Um, and maybe to celebrate this, but in a different way, uh, maybe we can try something a little bit different, namely talking about some of the myth surrounding the Fed instead of the usual market summary, which I'm sure most people have already seen. Um, and this comes from some of the reading I've done this week, in particular something that I saw Bob Prechter uh, wrote. And uh, he talks a little bit about these Fed myths. Myth. And um, he's got like three of them lined up. And I wanted to read them out to you, uh, sort of how I remember uh, what he wrote. And then uh, I'd love to just hear your thoughts about it. But the first one is that the Fed is proactive in setting interest rates. And he contends it's not. It's 100% react reactive and always has been. And what I mean by this is that if you look at a chart of the Fed funds rate, it continues to lag the rate changes in the T-bills as set by the market. Now, the second myth is that the Fed is using interest rate policy to produce some kind of outcome. For example, we hear lots of talk about the Fed lowering rates to step on the accelerator or raising rates to step on the brakes of the economy. But can you really say that the Fed's policy produced outcomes that wouldn't have happened naturally? And the third myth that's mentioned is that the Fed is doing either a good job or a bad job in producing these outcomes. But again, is it really true? Because what may look like a good job in, say, slowing the economy often ends up in an economy heading into a recession, like the current moment where officials are saying that despite rate rising more aggressively than ever before, we're still going to have a soft landing and that the tech tumble will not end, in, end up in a dot-com bust and that the housing sector is just cooling down, it's not melting down. So the Fed is obviously something you've uh, studied. You We've talked about the Fed in different ways before. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on these kind of myths that uh, Bob puts out there in his writing. Yeah, no, um, look, the, the Fed is absolutely not proactive. They are 100% reactive. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, the reality is they are constantly um, kind of chasing the new thing. Um, and I think that was never better seen than this year, right? This year, uh, you know, inflation was transitory. They weren't out in front of the data. They were, they were reacting to, you know, and, and they, in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, uh, you know, for the most part, unless it was easy, they were, they were constantly chasing whatever the next thing was. Um, you know, for the most part, 
other than the the self-fulfilling prophecy part of the Fed, their narrative and their ability to control through their uh, through their speech uh, what they want, except for that piece, they've really been playing for behind almost always. Um, and so they're able to, their narrative tools are powerful and they're able to use those to their advantage uh, to get a bit of what they want. But other than that, they're really chasing uh, kind of a lot of, you know, a lot of wrong outcomes and, and, and trying to get back on sides most of the time. To be clear, it's been an easy 40 years for the Fed. Um, uh, you know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, we've been in a situation where the Fed has been able to, you know, take interest rates from a very high level down and constantly go back to the well. Uh, they have this big pile of uh, liquidity that they could draw upon. Um, and they went to the lower bound. Uh, and among, along that way, they, they caused, you know, it went below the, the lower bound in a lot of places. And along the way, they created a massive inequality, which we've talked about. We won't kind of dive back down that rabbit hole. But the reality is it just went too far. And now they're stuck. They're stuck. They're in a box. So this isn't, this isn't the same Fed. It doesn't have the same uh, liquidity to draw upon that it normally would. Um, and to the extent it does, it, it can't, the, the forces, the pop, the popular populist forces that it, uh, that it's up against, um, have put it in a box. And we, we talked about that starting last year and it's only become more true now. Um, there's this vicious cycle, which we've talked about, which, you know, the more, uh, you respond to po politicians, respond to populism, the more fiscal policy they do and measures they do to help, uh, fix inequality the more we ultimately drive to an inflationary place, which is ultimately a flat tax, which hurts the populist, which drives more populism. So it's a big loop and the Fed's stuck in it and they don't, there's not much they can do. Um, now, now to kind of the second and third points, ultimately the Fed is, uh, not only are they stuck, but they are in a situation where, um, you know, uh, and so it's hard for them to do a good job, right? Because uh, ultimately it's a problem that they can't solve with the tools they have. But, um, but, but ultimately, you know, are they stepping on brakes? Are they accelerating? Yes, they're doing it in a, uh, on a cyclical level. I do believe they can slow down the economy. We're seeing that now. Uh, I think they, they can accelerate the economy, but these are short-term cyclical things. They can provide liquidity to the market, right? They can, they can push liquidity in and that can drive speculation and investment and all kinds of things. But in the short, that's very much in the short term. And that is a supply side response. Um, uh, you know, over secular outcomes, they really can't control that. And actually, ironically, and I talked about this in the past, the more they do the cyclical things to slow down inflation, which they're trying to do now, the more they're exacerbating structural inflation. Um, and we can kind of get into the details of that, uh, of what, what the drivers are there. But ultimately, we're in a, a secularly inflationary period and the Fed cyclical responses are very short-sighted. They're very, they're not trying to solve the problem or the causes of the problem. They're actually exacerbating those at the cost of lowering CPI in the short term. And that's really, again, a political action. It's not, to your first point, it's not the, the, the Fed getting out in front of things and being proactive. They're being reactive. And though that reactive policy is actually, ironically, maybe the worst thing they can do to the structural inflationary picture. Yeah. I mean, I think when I think about uh, some of these points, I think uh, almost where the Fed has ended up is in a situation where they can, for the most part, influence um, behavior of speculators, if I can almost call it that, uh, not even the broader investment uh, community, but certainly the speculation part of the uh, financial world. They do seem to, um, at least in, in recent years, be able to um influence that and, and of course you know some of the things that drive markets uh, for sure with you know uh, uh, bob wrote about this are they doing a good job or bad job and 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 of course this is something that you know may look uh, like they're doing a good job in the beginning when they turns out to be a bad job and 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 maybe i don't i don't think we can even say vice versa but but one thing that that's really stuck in my mind uh when i think back of the last few years is, for example, something that seems very obvious even for people who may not have studied economics for a long time and certainly, you know, institutions that even those who don't have 400 or 4,000 PhDs or however many they have, 
But I've always wondered why it was when interest rates were, you know, historical low. I mean, the lowest level we'd saw in whatever, whatever 4,000 years or people who've gone back and looked at that, uh, which is only a couple of years ago, really. Why was it really that the Fed didn't finance themselves for more than just a few years? Why didn't go they? Why didn't they go out and 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 uh, issue twenty or thirty year bonds? Um, you know, it would certainly have saved a lot of money for taxpayers uh, in the coming years. And uh, uh, of course, we don't know if interest rates will go back down again, but it doesn't look that way. Let's put it that that way. And um, so that that's one of those policy errors that I think are, are glaring for all of us to see, and it has real consequences if they're going to go out and spend, you know, billions of dollars on finance costs, which they could have saved. Well, they, they didn't want uh, the long end of the curve, right, to go higher, right? Uh, they they ultimately, uh, I think they were stuck, right? They needed that 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 uh, to save the market in the way they could. Right, without going and creating a bigger and bigger speculative bubble. Uh, it, yes, they could have done more. I, I hear you as a trade, right? It makes sense. Uh, yeah, I just think they had the, all the optimism, all the wind was in their back at the time. There's so much optimism, and you know, equities had gone up for you know a decade uh, with very few wobbles and and all of that. So, but anyway, that's a mute point. But it's just something where I think that that that, that is an easy policy error that I would think back uh, maybe will come back to haunt uh, the US taxpayer at some point. But I want to jump to something much closer to your heart um, because it's a little bit of a micro kind of interesting uh, conundrum, I think, and has to do with the market action in stocks since you were last on. You came on in mid-November. And um, it's been quite an interesting period in equities, uh, I think, since then. And and I just wanted to hear, um, you know, your observation. And I'm referring to two specific trading days. Um, I think November 30th and the recent December 13th. And on November 30th, um, we had the S&P futures soaring 150 points and the Nasdaq went up by 580 points in just a couple of hours. Uh, the Dow Jones hit... Uh, something like 34,000, just shy of 600, um, which was kind of a top tick. on the, and, and the next day, it actually gapped lower on the open. And then this week, you on the 13th, we had the S&P raising up 160 points, the NASDAQ up almost as much, 524, so almost as much as November 30th. Um, and it had a rise between... 8.29 and 8.31 in the morning, uh, I guess this is Chicago time, maybe New York time, which was one of the biggest moves that I can remember. And then shortly after midday, we had markets roll over and the Dow actually uh, was down after midday and it closed the day down as well. So we have two instances where the first we had the Fed chairman say nothing new, really. Uh, and in the second instance, we saw a tiny change in CPI. And now clearly investors are dying to buy the markets and really want the bull uh, market that we've seen in the past decade to continue. But as a volatility expert, two very different reactions or market behaviors on some pretty big days, really. What does that tell you that's really going on here? We referred to this... the first and most important thing to note here is illiquidity, right? Um, we've been talking about the trend. I think last month we talked about the trend towards increasing illiquidity, top top of book depth in the futures, uh, uh, you know, uh, total depth in, in the options markets has been thinning dramatically. Um, and then you add to that, which is seasonally a very illiquid time, right? And you get a market that just not prepared, right? Not liquid enough for the types of flows that can come off of some of these these bigger news events. Um, seasonally, we've. I, I think it's important to note what's happening in November and December. Generally, there's there's multiple. I, I've talked about this a couple of the places, but I think it's important to drill this home. People don't understand what seasonality is at this end of the year, and there's there's several components. I, I even I hate calling it seasonality, right? It's this 
why is it why are there positive flows or negative flows during this period of year and what what are the things that happen uh you have this higher this this move into the the longest standing expiration which is december opex which is three years old it's leaps right a lot of open interest a lot of structured products tied to these to these opex there's a lot of uh, you know dealer positioning that short put long call uh, and a, a lot more vol higher vol in those expirations exacerbated again because of cpi and the fed and everything in front of it here and uh so and, and the same is true uh you know then you have on top of that holidays right you have this much more days off in the market and the days surrounding those days off happen to be holidays that aren't just days on the calendar, but here in the U.S. Thanksgiving, which is a big family holiday. Uh, and then obviously Christmas in the end of the year, which again, in most of the Western world is a very important quiet time. You take all of that and you look at volume weighted time, right? Which is what we, how we look at it. It's not a perfect way. And the time actually uh, on the models is almost 50% of other time periods. So you really have this uh, decay of time that happens much more quickly during this period, a decay of a vol that happens. And on top of that, you have the skew in the market. And this, so structurally, as that December OPEX comes down, as the risk premium across the market comes down into the end of the year, there's natural everyday major structural flows that come to the market. And they're bigger than normal in the context of less liquidity to absorb it. And then you add short interest and chase into the end of the year, you know, all the things that everybody else knows about. Um, and, and that tends to be very structurally positive. Now, this year, it's even more positive than usual, I would say, uh, or was up until this point, up until really Wednesday. Um, and the reason it's more positive than usual is because vol is higher and there's just more potential energy because of that. Now, that's not all seasonality. At the end of the year, there's some other effects which are very important that are actually maybe even more important than into this kind of Santa Claus January effect period. Usually you get that positive flow that I was talking about from the other things. In addition, you get another very important thing is usually markets go up every year or, or companies make money and there's more money coming into the market. On average, let's say the market's up 10% per year, 10% of $100 trillion, which is the amount of equity, uh, $100 trillion is the amount of equity exposure, $450 trillion global assets. So it'll include private equity, you know, real estate, venture capital, all these other assets. They're all tied to equities as well. If markets, if things appreciate by 10% per year, guess what? That's um, $45 trillion to go to, that needs to go to work each year. That doesn't all happen on Jan 1, but a pretty decent amount of it does. Let's say only 10% of it goes in Jan 1. $4.5 trillion in a world where liquidity that moves the market is $75 billion per day. Um, so it's, it's a massive thing that comes in at the beginning of the year, a lot of mandates that are specific to that. So you get this front running of it into the end of the year. And then again, that they kind of sell the news that happens kind of second by the first, second week in Jan, when all that money gets committed, you put that together with all these other structural effects and you get a very positive flow generally. Now this year, that second part is flowing in reverse. The market's down. We're having a lot of uh, a lot of things early in the year that people aren't talking about. Private equity, venture capital, a lot of these things lag and are going to be slow to reset, but they're going to have to at the beginning of the year, real estate as well. So that kind of drop in collateral, that deleveraging that's going to happen in the year is very important. And people aren't looking at that. People are used to thinking of that in reverse. And I think that's an incredibly important thing. And I think that's part of what this this kind of this flow we've been seeing, the, the market's been rallying, right, on these positive flows, but then it's forward looking and, and people are saying, look, this is the time, you know, to, to sell into. Um, and, and again, not surprisingly, we were fortunate enough to get this right as well the last couple of days. We've been really bid under this market. We were pretty public last month about how you want to buy it into this period. But but the Santa Claus period, uh, January, we're actually not not bullish. We're, we're actually you know, quite the opposite. Now, with that, I, I think it's important to note there's a vol picture, right? We're talking up, down, really, first. The vol picture is a very well-supplied vol because uh, behind the December expiration, you have these 30th in January and all these other expirations, which were very well-supplied under what, something that is, uh, that is, is very, people are very short. So as that first expiration, which is high, goes away, everybody gets laden with more and more volatility at cheaper and cheaper prices. And that leads to more vol compression. So as you would expect here the last several days, and I would expect this going forward too, as we go into the holidays, vol compression should still be very much in play. And you, you know, the more of this environment, you're going to get a sideways to down market with the negative flows. Also tax loss selling this year will add to that um, in the context of vol compression. Um, and that's probably what we've expected. And we're, we're kind of seeing now that we're getting to this back half of the year. Now that'll 
that'll kind of play out the opposite way it usually does probably. And then let's say Jan 10th is kind of what we're targeting as a place where you really want to start stepping in and uh, start uh, nibbling a little bit, but we'll see. That's kind of the broad context and the way we think about the world and these flows and some of the things that are happening. In, in response to you're your more specifically to those moves, a lot of that up and down has been these forces uh, pushing us to each other, right? One, the positive structural flows that were into this period that people knew about and are kind of getting out in front of. And then again, that kind of sell the news when you get that opportunity uh, to kind of sell it, even selling it in the context of a very illiquid market. So you put those things together and you get a big pinball with massive range. But yeah, crazy to think, again, in particular, that that most recent one on CPI on the 13th of December, uh, you know, that was a uh, 4% rally in the S&P, uh, followed by a 4% decline uh, in a matter of hours. And, and to put that in, in context, again, the S&P, uh, you know, call it 40, 40 trillion. You know, we, we created $1.6 trillion of wealth and took it away in, uh, a couple of hours later. Um, and that all probably was based on $100 billion to $150 billion in net flows. So it's this leverage in the market, the, the amount of liquidity people really don't understand. Most, most players don't understand but what's actually moving the market, market and how little that is relative to the actual value of the markets. The, the overwhelming majority of markets is passive. Um, and is not net moving the market. It's like a venture, the whole market is like a venture capital deal, right? Where there's like 5% float and they're pricing it at X because of uh, that, that float, but it's less than 5%, right? You're talking about, you know, one per, less than 1%. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's crazy for people to think about scary once you kind of really start to understand the realities of it. But, but that liquidity is the biggest theme and will, in my opinion, be the biggest theme of the first half of next year. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, I seem to remember in my last uh, last week episodes um, in with with Rob, I seem to remember in the um, kind of summary um, there was some news out uh, that I referred to. I think where we saw the first net outflows of U.S. equity funds since April of 2020, or something like that. Um, so that's also kind of interesting. If 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 sentiment uh, among those type of investors are starting to change. And, uh, and of course, if volatility really is compressing and coming down, then our friend out in Singapore, Dave Dredge, whom we spoke to recently, and the episode is coming out very soon, he'll have lots of phone calls maybe uh, when when there's value in volatility again. So yeah, anyway, it's a wonderful it was, conversation. It, I look forward to having it. Yeah, it one is of a fantastic again. conversation. I can't wait to publish it. Anyways, all right. So from a trend following perspective, um, we are recording Friday, so I don't really know what's happening today. But um, I think this week actually is a little bit of a recovery week. I think uh, most managers uh, will have made back some of the losses they had early on in December. Um, and of course, this is to some extent, uh, to a large extent, really, um, coming from the market action yesterday, uh, where some of the price moves we saw across the markets came back towards the longer term trends um, and kind of uh, uh, waned on these uh, correction moves we've seen the last few weeks. So we'll see how that all plays out. I will say, though, that I did notice a little bit of dispersion returns yesterday. Um, so it could be also the time frame plays a bigger role this week, meaning if you had um, certain shorter term time frames, you may have turned on some of these corrections and then uh, you might get caught now where, where markets are coming back to the longer term trends um, and, and so on and so forth. So we'll see. My trend barometer is uh, yesterday at, at was at 34. So actually, you know, confirming the slightly down um, numbers that we see so far. Uh, this month, uh, and speaking about those as of Wednesday, probably uh, these numbers are a little bit lower than what they are as of Thursday. But as of Wednesday, down 1.44% for the beta 50, up 125 for the year. Sockgen CTA index down 1.7%, up 18.19% for the year. The trend index is down 1.8% for December, up 253 for the year. And the short-term traders index down 066 of a percent up 10.77 and putting that into context the msei world index um, as of yesterday was down three percent for the month down 18 and a half for the year and the s p also down three percent i think uh and maybe down a little bit less on the year bonds world government bonds actually still up for the month all 
right, Jim, let's uh, jump into some of your topics and we'll see um, how, how many of them we, we get to. Um, so obviously I never quite know where we're going with this, so it's always exciting. Um, and But you wrote to me why the debate between recession and no recession doesn't really matter the way people think it does. So um, tell us what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of referred to this a little bit already, but I think it's important to note that most of the talking heads you hear out there, right, are talking in two dimensions. Are we going to get a recession? Is the economy going to fall apart? And the insinuation with all that is, is that ultimately will determine the direction of the market. Right? This is the way most people think about markets. They think uh, the economy is the market. And, and you know, we mentioned this before, but I, I, I want to keep hammering on this. It's so important. The economy is not the market, right? Um, again, 68 to 82, we've talked about this before, 14 years market went nowhere, but the economy grew above trend, right? Uh, much more above trend in the last 20 years in, in, in real terms. And inflation is term, and inflation was high. So growth was very strong. It was a demand push economy. And what people don't realize is broadly, we have a demand push economy and a very strong economy uh, you know, here in the U.S. And, and, and globally, actually, demand push is actually pushing uh, decent growth. Um, now, obviously, in the context of that, we had four recessions during, during that 68 to 82 period, right? Uh, that doesn't, but overall, even taking those recessions in, we grew above trend. Um, much more frequent recessions, much more kind of the Fed trying to, again, as we talked about, chase inflation and, and control. But you, you ultimately are in a, in a time, and this is much more akin to longer term history, in a period where, where the Fed can't have absolute control. The Fed can't just reduce volatility. The Fed put is softer, right, and, and less existent. Um, and in those periods, uh, you know, again, despite the inflation and despite the above trend growth, uh, you're going to get a lot of negative net-net or secular effects, which is, again, contraction and uh, liquidity broadly, most importantly for all assets. Uh, the the uh, reverse Tina effect, which is the money flowing to bonds. I mean, if there's a huge whooshing sound that nobody's talking about that. I mean, if you can now make 5% in bonds, given the you know, what's going on in valuations in the S&P, it's very different than when interest rates are zero. You have an alternative. You can go put... And all that money that rushed out of bonds into equity and risk assets is now, you know, flowing aggressively the other way. That's not a small thing. I don't think people are talking about that enough. You heard so much about the Tina effect on the way up. You don't hear much about the opposite now. And then, importantly, it's not just money, less demand, less assets, you know, less liquidity. And we talked about early in the year that's that collateral is going to drop even more which has like a reflexive effect. So less, that's, a, uh, that's basically the lagging effects of Fed liquidity coming off the table and reducing demand for assets. But not only do you have those two things, but in terms of risk assets, the risk premium is going up. Liquidity, less liquidity in the market doesn't just mean less money chasing assets. Um, it also means there's just less money to absorb liquidity in the market. The risk premium has been compressed by the Fed taking rates to zero. This is what led to the absolute speculation, because not only is money flowing in, but it's 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 flowing into uh, a, you know, and, and not only is there this Tina effect forcing to risk assets, but the risk premium has been compressed because you always know the Fed's there on some level to come and save the market, even if it's it takes a decent decline before it happens. You'll get that V bottom, you'll get that, that stretch back, and so risk premium during periods like this dramatically increases. So spreads should continue to widen. So the point here, I guess, all all in all, is. Uh, we we very well are going to we're likely going to get a recession. Um, you know that that's and, and in the short term, sure that people can point to that and say that's what what's wrong with the economy. We'll recover out of that if the Fed pauses and pivots and does whatever it does. But at the end of the day, if we have a stronger economy or a shallow recession, it's probably the worst thing for the market. The worst outcome for the market right now would be a very very shallow recession, uh, something that doesn't ultimately. Um, do enough for the Fed to pause or pivot in a meaningful way. Um, it doesn't slow inflation enough. And ultimately, secular inflation keeps building, and then the Fed has to come back in and remove more liquidity. It's actually the worst thing that can possibly happen. And, and, and the stronger the economy is, ironically, and we, you know, this is not just in the short term, longer term, 
we're going to have more and more problems for the market. Ultimately, the Fed and the liquidity that the Fed is providing is what is important here. Uh, That is what is driving all these effects. And, and And I strongly believe the economy is going to continue to be a demand push economy. And the more pull down we have and the more problems, the more there'll be a populist fiscal response in some form or another. Um, and the more problems we're going to have for the market. So so the economy is not the market. We've said that before, but keep that top of mind. The worse the recession, ironically, that might be the better thing for the market here. Uh, we actually don't think we're going to get that deeper recession. No. I mean, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that everybody, or I say everybody, a lot of people are cheering for this pivot. Um, but actually, you could sit down and just rationally think and say, well, if they're really forced to pivot, then something must be really wrong. And that's not a good sign. So in a sense, I'm I'm kind of thinking, you know, either way, <laughs> it's not a really clear sign whether it's good or bad for the markets. Um, and it leads me to another thing that, um, that actually I, I've been thinking about, especially because, uh, and this is an upcoming episode that, that's going to come out soon, um, so I, I'm not going to steal his thunder, um, but we're having uh, Dylan Grice on, who's a really, really interesting um, person to uh, to listen to about investments, building portfolios. And he made a point that actually goes to your your uh, point about whether recession or not, where, where in a sense I think he's saying that, well, why don't we just focus on building portfolios where we don't have to worry about inflation, where we don't have to worry about the next CPI number or the next non-farm payroll number. And this can be done. I mean, using vol strategies like yourself, using trend following, using traditional investments, it, but, but essentially blending together these non-correlated return streams, uh, like Ray Dalio calls it, obviously the holy grail. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I think it can be done. And, um, and so I'm fascinated by all of this focus you see every single day in the news headlines about um you know is it going to be 7.3 or 7.4 percent like it like it really matters um so um so that's by the way you know last time we spoke you said the reverse tina effect and i say well that's an it now that didn't fly well in google <laughs> search trends yeah now, now i'm thinking about need a new why hey what is why it? hey why hey you have an alternative you have maybe we should an trademark alternative. why hey yeah. you have an alternative i don't know we need we need a, a person's name we need to work it into a person's name right? maybe we'll we'll figure out a way to to call well, maybe there's so i mean deals affected you know we'll, we'll figure out <laughs> no the, i don't uh, think that's gonna fly word. either but maybe there is someone out there listening to us that's actually called why hey yeah. and um, and then that we have our solution anyways <laughs> enough of that silliness we need a new name we need a new name. All right. Um, you have another point. I I think some of the points we kind of already talked about, we talked a little bit about the Santa Claus, we talked a little bit about CPI, but maybe one of the things you also uh, brought along um, that you might want to expand a little bit upon is how and when to get short this market, um, if that is your expectation. Yeah, so we've talked about this a little bit, but I, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer. Uh, we have uh, you know gotten that kind of reverse... Uh, the counter trend move recently. We're gonna get. We're getting this kind of weakness here end of the year, but with low volatility. I would expect that um, sometime. Again, we get a, a bit more um, uh, in early January, called Jan tenth on forward. Uh, kind of a a, a rekindling of a, of a next kind of leg up. Nothing crazy, but from a lower level, um, and get a pretty powerful rally in, in Jan to Feb. I, I kind of think of it as, you know, during that COVID crash, and we've, we've uh, mentioned this, you know, that, that drop happened. We knew about COVID, right, uh, in early uh, January, uh, but the market continued to reach new highs until Feb OPEX, and it rolled over the day after Feb OPEX. That's not a coincidence. It ended the day after March OPEX. Again, not a coincidence. That is the interplay of dealer positioning uh, on display. And we have a lot of those effects, which are similar this year, um, in the sense that uh, in a, from a vol perspective, January vol is quite well supplied. Uh, you know, uh, February, sorry, February vol is quite well supplied, uh, even more so than January behind December and January, which generally are the highest, right? So people are decaying longer and longer vol into a period where the market's going down, uh, but not down aggressively. Uh, and, and so I broadly expect that we'll continue to have a lot of what we've had the last years into February, which is 
this vol compression into a broadly sideways to down market. That said, you come into uh, you know this this uh, January period, and I expect that to cause some type of uh, positive flow for people to uh, on the back half of this year. This bad, what, what I think this year is going to be bad season on some some positive flow, and I do think that's going to lead to some type of market up vol up uh, you know situation, which we haven't seen that much of. Uh, something that's not just one day or two days, but something that really over the course of a week or week and a half, you really start to see some stretching, some squeezing. Um, and and maybe it'll be, there'll be a narrative about CPI being weak again, or or the final pause coming, because that makes sense in terms of timeline, right? The Fed's going to do another 50 basis points probably next time. And then maybe they drop it to a quarter or nothing. And so that's kind of that, that sell the news moment, which again, this, this, the macro is lining up with the flows just right where, you know, we would expect that in that Feb OPEX period, and I think it's Feb 14th, that, that CPI, you know, you start to get a period of, if the market can rally like we think it is, if we get what I think we're going to get in that period, which is a counter trend, strong rally, that could be finally the last rug pull. So we're really targeting out this period in February. We've been kind of talking and insinuating it for a while. We'll see how it goes between now and then, right? I don't want to talk too much about it, get everybody playing for it. But the reality is that, and it sounds very specific, but I want to be clear, a year and a quarter, year and a half ago, back in uh, September of of 2021, we called the January almost to the day the the top in the market. So these are these are things that matter. These are these these calendar effects. Are, it sounds crazy, but look for a February, particularly that uh, that Wednesday of Feb OPEX, to be kind of a general period that we're targeting for if this market does continue to hang in there, volume continues to be compressed, and then we get some rally that that you're going to you get some broad optimism that that might be the period to really look for what is a continuation finally of, of what has otherwise been a pretty stable uh, return to liquidity, you know, uh, and optimism coming back into the market. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, I mean, clearly everybody who listens to this uh, conversation knows that I'm not a volley expert, but um, something I had that had come across my uh, radar is that um, say VIX uh, hasn't really reacted the way it normally or has done in the past this year. Um, and so when you look at these things, I I imagine you look back at history uh, for, for some of this. And, and I was just going to ask, in a year like this year where things have been, as, as far as I can tell, so different uh, in your world, um, can you still rely on some of these um, indicators, if I can call it that? Yeah, people misunderstand what we do. We're not looking at technical trends. I'm not looking at history on a calendar and saying, okay, be bullish here, don't be bullish here. I'm looking at dealer positioning and understanding if that changes, that changes uh, kind of the way we approach things. So it's a dynamic process that's, that's a function of the actual drivers of supply and demand in the market. That's a qualitative understanding, which is very important. Uh, yes, we're quantitative in our approach, but the quantitative piece comes uh, on the back of a qualitative uh, understanding of, of how things work. And I think that's very different than, let's say, uh, Renaissance or Jim Simons, or who will themse- themselves tell you they don't, they're ambivalent to why. They, they do it just because of, of the data. And there's a lot of trend following other things that are the same way, right? Which which works. I want to be clear. Like, clearly, there's... Uh, there's Some, a, sometimes, yeah. Jim. Sometimes it works. <laughs> well, the same is true for all of our strategies, right? So, but the, but the reality is our approach is to really understand the why and start there and then measure the, the what uh, and then kind of optimize to that. So, you know, we are very dynamic. We're not sitting here saying, oh, seasonality says that I want to be long XYZ or this is where in the OPEX cycle you want to be long. There are some trends because of some historical trends and the, t- the tendency of those things to work. And that's what, you know, a lot of people are that our punters are kind of doing and they can benefit off it. That works until it doesn't. But like you said, uh, when things start to go upside down a bit, which they are now, um, you know, that that can really uh, confuse people. And uh, so the, the why is the hard part uh, and measuring the, the what is the hard part. And that's that's, you know, that's what we try and do. That's what you do. All right, cool. All right. Well, let's stay in the in the put world, so to speak, um, because uh, as you and I discovered, uh, I think actually it was Adam Rosenzweig who informed us on uh, our last recording with him. Uh, where the U.S. had just kind of imposed a new um, put, which was the oil put, uh, so to speak, 
Um, so I don't know if that's where you're, you're going, but you, you wrote to me the oil put sale versus S&P short. So um, tell me a little bit more yeah, about that. Yeah, so from a vol perspective, if I look across the vol market, we've kind of, we, we touched on this a little bit, I think, last time. But um, when you really look at the vol market across uh, different areas, treasury vol has become fairly priced, in our opinion, based on the inflationary environment and the removal, importantly, of the Fed put. I mean, again, I say removal, obviously the Fed can still stimulate, yeah. but it just has much less ability to do that. It's in a box, as we mentioned. It has another mandate, which is price stability, that it must hold true to, and that is now giving it less ability to do what it wants um, or, or whatever it wants, whenever it wants, right? Um, so, so that means Treasury vol should come up because there's less... Uh, you know, control from the dominant entity. FX vol is tied to that as well, right? FX vol is tied to the Fed's strength and ability to control that volatility. Uh, so we've seen an adjustment in FX vol as well. But ironically, we've actually seen commodity vol increase in, in step with those others. And what we see historically and what, what makes sense to us broadly, again, the why um, is is oil vol, uh, commodity vol, actually, uh, there's a new put because we're in a time of resource scarcity during times of inflation, historically, uh, you have less uh, two-sided vol to uh, commodities. There's more of a trend, an uptrend with more vol compression to the downside. And there's essentially a OPEC plus put or a whoever the, the controlling entities of, of energy uh, have a bit more ability to underpin in this environment. Um, you know, uh, and that's especially true with the Fed less dominant. So now that the balance of power has shifted to extent uh, with resources. And, and so there is a Fed put. Um, and we're seeing that almost explicitly with the U.S. government having to, to spend all their resources into the election and drain the SPR and now explicitly come out and say, hey, we're buying oil for 70 to $72 a barrel. And not surprising when we got this recent liquidation, there's a lot of support down at 70 and we got a nice little uh, bounce there. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's because of all this, the cyclical recession fears, whatever, right? We're getting this liquidation back down to the 70s. But the point is, there's a put underneath that. And that doesn't mean it can't go lower. Uh, again, during these periods, you know, even during a period of Fed dominance, right? Secularly, we had some volatility uh, over short periods. But on a secular basis, vol was more compressed, risk premium was more compressed. And we expect that to actually translate over longer time periods. I'm not talking about the next. Uh, quarter of the next year here in oil, I'm talking about the next five years, 10 years, broadly, one of the better think, bets we think uh, on, long, on a long-term basis is vol compression in the commodity space. And that, that vol has broadly overreacted um, uh, in the oil space. And a lot of that, uh, and then particularly, uh, you know, on the downside, right? Uh, and and uh, upside long-term vol uh, in, in oil uh, you know, you should get trend there, which we've talked about. We've seen good commodity trend this year. I think that's a great, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg there. Um, and I think we, we think there's a lot of opportunity there as a function of that 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 put uh, supply. So the more put supply you have there, more vol supply ultimate, which is coming from the market. That, and then on the other end, the one asset who hasn't on a vol basis responded and directionally as well, I mean, that's part of the reason, is gold. Um, and historically, during inflationary periods, gold actually is is more volatile than oil. You actually have a lot more swinging, similar to FX, right? You have a similar because uh, uh, it's more of a, uh, a currency in, in many ways. You have more volatility, um, but the, there's a nice uptrend. So you see a much more volatile uptrend to gold, and a much more stable kind of uptrend to oil. And ironically, the the vol in them has done the opposite so far this year. So there's an interesting opportunity to really get express your directionality um, as an inflationary hedge in, in uh, gold with calls because they're cheap. Uh, long, again, we're talking longer dated, not in the next six months. We're talking about a longer secular inflationary hedge kind of thesis. But on the on the oil side, you actually can offset that vol exposure with selling puts, which are higher in the commodity space. And again, we're talking longer term. Feel free to buy shorter term protection against those and, and get gamma and protection, right? Uh, you know, uh, and so this is not a you know, actionable thing today uh, per se, as much as hey, we're looking at it. If you're trying to set it and forget it for a long-term investment thesis, those are um, so you can offset your vol exposure, get a really nice credit to your vol um, across those two things, and then really have a nice inflationary hedge, which is a, I think a really kind of unique thing that other people aren't talking about. 
in terms of a macro. Like there, it's hard to hedge vol right now because vol's got a lot higher across the board. Uh, equity vol is the one, you know, and gold vol are the two I think that are that are now cheap, um, you know, relative to everything else and relative to the opportunity set. And we've already kind of referred to, you know, talked about how bad equity vol has performed this year and that a second move phenomena will likely take correlations more to one and, and, and give us a bit more equity vol finally, probably in Q1 or Q2 of this year. So that's kind of what we're looking for from a vol perspective and also from a macro perspective and kind of tying them together. Now, since you bring up gold, um, and I don't know if you feel you already answered it, uh, maybe I didn't kind of pick it up, but I mean, of course, gold has been mentioned by so many people as, um, you know, the, the best hedge against inflation, um, it's also a hedge against other things, um, you know, governments and and all sorts of things. But but I think a lot of people have, um, you know, talked about it in in terms of of hedging inflation and and actually uncertainty in general, geopolitical uncertainty and stuff like that. But of course, again, this year um, it hasn't really reacted the way you would expect. Sorry, I was going to say, but it's interesting, right? Because I wasn't out here talking about gold early in the year. I was talking about commodities. And the commodity piece worked, right? And now people have gone, you know, a bit too far on that end. And and now's the time that nobody's talking about gold, right? I'm not a gold bug. I don't. I don't have a secular. Uh, I haven't had a secular view. My, no, but my question is just if you have any explanation as to why gold hasn't really done what a lot of people expected. I mean, do you have a view? Yeah, on there's that? a couple reasons. First and foremost positioning right uh, the everybody's been waiting for this event for gold to work and you know it didn't work same reason puts didn't work in the s&p into a decline it's if a space gets too crowded now, that doesn't change the secular realities of the situation but in the short term that can lead to you know considerable liquidation and underperformance of things that other otherwise you would think would happen that doesn't change the again the, the longer term personality but you have to get people uh, the market more balanced before you can start to get the underlying moves to work so there's there's things that operate which is dealer positioning over shorter time frames and then there are more structural macro flows that that matter over the long term so so our view is that it was just a crowded trade and that's first and foremost there you know the other argument is and this is kind of like a Rorschach inkblot test but you know there's always the argument that also gold when interest rates is going higher doesn't pay a yield right so it, it's kind of a you know something that that you can sink your money in and, and you know you're not going to get what you can get in theory on 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 a, on a treasury side or, or something like that so it now competes away from gold um, so there's all some of that there's there's a lot of that kind of uh Bitcoin you know. as being another explanation. <laughs> People were saying that the Bitcoin they were buying gold. the Bitcoin and not gold. Yeah, I, I think you know how I feel about it. <laughs> we won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah, we. Yeah, Bitcoin is is a uh, is a speculative asset first and foremost. Sure. Now the last point that I just picked up, I think, from your newsletter recently, and I don't know. I mean, it's it looks interesting to me. Um, because it's a surprising big number. Um, but I think there's something to do with almost half of the options volume are in like super short dated, uh, like one day options or something like that, if I understood 44% it correctly. 44% of the volume in, uh, in the S&P options uh, has been in zero DTE, zero days to expiration options this whole quarter. So what does that mean and why is it so big and what the hell is going on? Yeah, so why? Because vol itself, like implied volatility, um, hasn't performed this year. So uh, people are really hesitant to go buy options uh, and buy implied vol because it just hasn't worked. Um, uh, so less, uh, people are more... Uh, keen to bet, bet on the realized volatility itself, which is really that one day, the zero data expiration option. It's much more gamma intensive and less exposed to implied vol itself. Um, so that's worked this year. So people have chased into it. That's one. Two, um, there's still a lot of uh, speculative activity in markets broadly, and it's moved out of, uh, you know, chasing meme names and whatever. But But there's this reality that the gamma effects are so big that you're forcing dealers, you know, for somebody who's bigger and looking for liquidity, you're forcing dealers into a short game of position. And uh, on a realized basis, we're getting a lot of short-term, you know, we, again, we referred to the 13th. I mean, you got a 4% rally, a 4% drop in the S&P 500. 
Um, you know, on a straddle, I think that was like $55, $60. It was, you know, not that big, right? Uh, so incredible opportunity today. Now, if you went and bought a three-month option, you know, by the end of the day, the market hadn't moved and like, what good did that do you? So uh, it's it's a reflexive, much like we've talked about, options are so reflexive. The more people play in those, the more volatility it causes, the more illiquidity it causes. So it's causing a lot of knock-on effects in the market, which is a much more kind of a schizophrenic market that's moving very quickly, that's very illiquid. Um, and that's dangerous, just like a market can rally 4% in, uh, you know, a couple hours and then drop 4%. We could very easily see the opposite also begin to happen. And we've talked about that. The more liquid we're, these, these markets are getting, the more speculation you're getting. You know, a lot of the buying is on the call side. Uh, a lot of like uh, on these numbers, speculation is on the call side. So that's forced a little bit more upside moves. But there's nothing that says that the opposite's not going to start happening more too. Um, I think in particular, there's a lot of volume there that's put selling, like unit put selling. Uh, that's another thing to note. Uh, so when I when we look at that volume, you have a ton of people that come in at zero D DTE and sell nickels and dimes and 15 cent options in mass. And it makes for this year a track record. Have you seen any track record out there that's showing you a three to four sharp uh, trading S&P zero DTE options run? Uh, the reality is it is uh, they're just selling tails and it's worked incredibly down or up because the, the moves aren't haven't been big enough. Um, and the reason they do, they go sell zero DT and not one or two or three days a year day to ex expiration is because the zero DT doesn't show up on margin. Um, uh, these clearing houses look at daily, uh, look at your margin at the end of the day. And guess what? If you sell them zero DTA and they're not looking at your margin during the day, you can do whatever you want. And the clearinghouse probably doesn't say anything. And it's a very dangerous game uh, in, in, in reality. But uh, again, at the end of the day, it expires. And if it expires above your number, you're not worried about the implied vol or the margin squeeze. And margin squeezes are, are a real thing. And they can, you know, you can see massive dislocation between zero and one day to a expiration. Actually, we saw it just yesterday because there's a massive short interest in the AM print you know, because everybody's short the AM print uh, OPEX options, but they're available to, they're able to get the the zero DTE at 5 p.m. So you see, you know, a strike that, you know, out one day that's priced at $5 and the other one trading a nickel, right? It's just a margin uh, chase. And so my point is you see a lot of selling because of those margin, lack of margin constraints. That said, that's kindling, right? That's that oil, you know, the gasoline on the floor we've talked about. At some point, you get a liquidation. Um, and uh, yeah, the mar margin doesn't matter, but P&L does. And if your P&L starts uh, imploding, uh, you, you know, there's just not enough liquidity in that stuff. Um, and it can cause major game effects. So so we, we I guess, wide-ranging kind of conversation about that stuff. But it's really changing the distribution of outcomes as we talk about. Um, the more and more trading there is in those things, it's making for less liquidity. It's causing more gamma effects. Um, and, and so watching that dealer positioning is also critically important to your day-to-day -day trading uh, and, and, and what's going on out there. Well, before we wrap up, this is the, the last conversation you and I are having before the end of the year. Um, because the next two weeks, uh, we will be releasing our group conversation uh, in two parts uh, on the 24th and the 31st, uh, which has, of course, already been recorded. Um, but just while I have you here, Jim, um, looking back at 2022, and it doesn't have to be, you know, restricted to vol, um, could be anything, Um what 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 are you gonna take away from 2022 that might be maybe kind of your biggest surprise or something unexpected that you thought wow that I didn't see that coming um I mean other than Denmark going out of the World Cup of course early <laughs> on <laughs> oh yeah I mean look uh we were actually fortunate enough to be on the right side of, of kind of this. Remember, beginning of the year, inflation was transitory. Uh, you know, we broadly called for expect the unexpected, expect more geopolitical strife uh, because of rising inflation. Like all of this has been part of our thesis for a year and a half. That said, Russia, you know, invading Ukraine was not on our card, right? Like that definitely didn't 
we didn't see that level of acceleration of geopolitical issues coming. The, you know, the bifurcation between China and the U.S. and the acceleration of, of what seems to be going on there, that China, you know, pairing up with uh, Russia as part of a kind of a block, um, like those those changes are are structurally so important to the next five, 10 years. And uh, we've kind of moved past, like everybody's not talking about that anymore, but that that reality is still the most important thing. I mean, if you think about the last 20, 40 years, it's not just the Fed's ability to stimulate and pushing money in the market, but it's the globalization that happened, the growth of bringing in, uh, you know, 1.5, 1.2 billion uh, Chinese, 1.2 billion, in the, you know, and it's into the market and integrating it. That's been the biggest deflationary force, the biggest, uh, you know, which has allowed the Fed the control that it needed, right, to keep uh, printing more money and pushing liquidity into the market. So these structurally deflationary forces are really, in our opinion, coming to, uh, are slowing and coming to actually a more abrupt halt, in our opinion, than, than we would have even expected. Um, and so it doesn't go in a straight line, right? Uh, you know, it's hard to, but, but the realities are, until we see a pivot from China, um, I think uh, you know things are going to get worse before they get better. Uh, now maybe everybody's looking for that pivot from China, right? Uh, a kind of a reopening, a, a pulling away from their backing of Russia and Ukraine, you know. But there are no signs that that's going to happen. There's no sign that the that the West is also going to allow it to happen, um, in our view. Um, so. So that's the biggest thing I think that to keep it in mind. People have stopped talking about it because it was February and market memories uh, pretty pretty short. But um, but I think again the the Russia Ukraine piece is important and has played a role in inflation this year and uh, increasing kind of I'm warning. But I think the bigger piece is is the continued relationship between China and the U.S. and that kind of the resource scarcity that that's causing from a labor perspective from a resource, like a commodity perspective, from a currency perspective, the funding perspective, all of those things are accelerating faster, I think. And, and if truly we begin to bifurcate in some way, you know, if the Taiwan thing uh, does come to pass in the next couple of years, which we still believe it will, um, we think things will actually get worse. So um, I think that's the biggest thing that surprised me and that I think has accelerated a lot of the forces that we thought were coming anyway. Uh, it's just happened a lot faster and a lot more and, and more powerfully than we expected. A couple of thoughts just when you were talking. Uh, you talked about China. Um, if I'm not mistaken, within the last 24, 36 hours, I think China has come out and said they're not going to report COVID numbers anymore. That to me is a worrying sign um, because, as I, you know, e either way you 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 look at it, um, it doesn't bode well. I think um, so. That's one thing that's interesting in that regard. The other thing when you talk about this bifurcation. Another way of looking at it uh, is, of course, that um, often I don't think people realize how the world has changed. And what I mean by that is, you know, go back 20 or 30 years, the biggest trade partner for many European countries and, and many parts of the world was the US. Today, it's China. And, and that changes things. It changes kind of allegiances and 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 you know and and so on and so forth so um so of course you and I I mean I think we started doing the global macro series really intensely in around uh, February March time and you know had Peter Zion on pretty early on and 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 so that obviously was a big theme um but I think sometimes just stepping back and looking at the whole situation from uh from 30,000 feet and what it really means uh, having a very different world today compared to 20 or 30 years ago when you have to deal with big issues um that 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 is uh, you know frightening frankly yeah i mean it's uh it touches everything we do right um we are going to have to change in the west our economies uh, you know we can't if if that you know this is truly becoming an adversarial relationship if we are truly going into a new cold war with uh you know or for lack of a better term or even a hot war right with with uh with china at the end of the day 
our economy is not built to, to work that way. Yeah, we can move stuff to other countries, uh, you know, try and go to Mexico and go to Vietnam and, you know, Philippines or wherever, right? But, but at the end of the day, that capacity um, is, is reducing dramatically and, and all the lines that have been created there are changing. We're going to have to onboard a tremendous amount of, uh, of things here in, in the West that we haven't been doing uh, for decades. Um, and that, that takes us back to a different type of economy and, and has structurally really inflationary effects. Um, and the inflationary effects are just that kind of first order, the second order effects that come from that have m even bigger effects. Um, so, uh, you know, I think deglobalization is the biggest kind of thing that we need to be thinking about. And that's, uh, you know, I think an incredibly important thing that has accelerated quicker than I would expect. Yeah, no, absolutely. On that uh, concern note, uh, let's put it that way. Uh, we're going to wrap up this uh, conversation. Um, if you want to support us, if you want to help us grow uh, and uh, allow more people to listen to uh, our episodes, uh, please go and, and leave a rating review uh, on uh, I was just going to say on Apple, on Spotify, on Amazon, wherever you listen to your podcast, uh, it's called iTunes is what I was thinking of. Um, please do so um, and make sure you follow the podcast. Uh, that would be fantastic. Um, as I said, uh, we'll be back uh, in a two-part special episode the next couple of weeks um, with the whole group. Um, unfortunately, Rich was not uh, able to join us, but uh, the rest of the guys are here. Um, from Jim and me, Thanks ever so much for uh, listening. We look forward to being back with you soon. And on a personal note, I wish all of you a warm and happy holiday season. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.